of suffering. So I'd encourage you to open up your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4, and we will read through from verse 12 through to the end. Verse 19. So 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through to 19. Hear the word of the Lord. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh... Sorry, I'm starting from the beginning of the chapter. We'll go from verse 12. <laughs> Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would speak to us through your word. Show us Christ. Reveal him to us. And may we be more and more captivated by him. And may your spirit continue to transform us more and more into his likeness as we seek to love God and love one another as you have loved us in the gospel. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. A woman in India watches as her sister is dragged off by Hindu nationalists. She doesn't know if her sister is alive or dead. A man in, North Korea, in a North Korean prison camp is shaken awake after being beaten unconscious. And the beatings begin again. A woman in Nigeria runs for her life. She has escaped from Boko Haram, who killed her. She is pregnant, and when she returns home, her community will reject her and her baby. A group of children are laughing and talking as they come down to their church's sanctuary after eating together. Instantly, many of them are killed by a bomb blast. It's Easter Sunday in Sri Lanka. These are just a few of the stories that I, I read on Open Door's website which helps describe the kind of persecution that is going on currently around our world against Christians. And just some statistics here for you guys. If there's over 340 million Christians living in places where they experience high levels of persecution and discrimination. Just in the last year, 4,761 Christians were killed for their faith in Jesus. 
4,488 churches and other Christian buildings were attacked and 4,277 believers were detained without trial, arrested, sentenced or imprisoned. This is the picture of Christian persecution around the world and it is harrowing. It is frightening. It is scary. It's hard to be a Christian in a world that is hostile against our faith, isn't it? And this is why we are looking at the letter of 1 Peter. Because in this whole letter, Peter writes to encourage Christians who are facing persecution, Christians who are being pushed to the margins, Christians who are being pushed aside. They are a minority and they are currently facing persecution and they will more, like, more than likely face more persecution. This short letter is an encouragement from the Apostle Peter to a group of Christians in Asia Minor. And his encouragement is for them to persevere through their suffering, to persevere through the hardship that they are experiencing. Never once does he ask for the persecution to be taken away, as nice as that would be, but he encourages them to keep pushing through it. Throughout this letter, Peter has been encouraging his readers time and time again, reminding them of the living hope that they have in the gospel. I'll just do a brief summary. He encourages them with the imperishable inheritance that is theirs through Jesus' resurrection. He's reminded them that God has called them to be distinct in the world, to look different from everyone else in the world and to look like Jesus. And in the first part of chapter 4, this chapter we are looking at today, Peter paints this beautiful portrait of the kind of loving community that we are called to as the church. It's an encouragement. The church is a community that is marked by earnest love. The church is a community that shows genuine and generous hospitality. The church is a community that uses their gifts to serve one another. And the church is a community that speak and live out the gospel to one another. And if that isn't enough, Peter tops off um, in verse 11 with a stunning doxology, showing the culmination of what this loving community will look like when it finds its completion in Jesus Christ. And Peter writes this in verse 11 at the end. To him, that's Jesus, be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Wouldn't that be a lovely spot to finish the letter? After having gone through all of this stuff about the encouragement to have through persecution, to persevere, finish with a nice doxology, and that would be a lovely place to finish. It'd be nice, wouldn't it? To finish on an uplifting note, to finish on a high place with the extravagant love of Jesus expressing itself in the extravagant love of the church, which culminates in Jesus' glory. But Peter's not finished. He's got more to say. And so this morning, Peter returns back to one of his central themes in this letter, the theme of suffering. Now, if you go and read through this, you could easily come back and go, I think Peter's done his dash on this topic. We could be forgiven that he's overdone it. It's been over the top. We've seen back in chapter 1, he started by calling his readers elect exiles. Yeah, you're a minority. You're exiles. You don't fit in. 
in chapter 2. He's called his readers to conduct themselves honorably so that when the Gentiles slander you, not if, when the Gentiles slander you, they will see good works and glorify God. In chapter 3, the theme of suffering continues, where the Christian is called to bless and seek the good of those who persecute and perpetrate suffering against us. Again, Peter's argument is founded on the fact that Christ suffered so that we could be blessed. Jesus' example is the template. Jesus' suffering is the template. And it's what we are then to build our lives off as well. And we've also seen that there is an intimate link between suffering and holiness. Our holiness is kind of fashioned and perfected through suffering. And yet again, here we go. Peter begins with, Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same understanding. Suffer, 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 suffer. Do you get what I'm saying? This is heavy stuff. Really heavy stuff. But if we understand the context that Peter's writing to, it can be encouraging. In fact, that is the main point of what Peter is trying to do. Not to make them feel under the pump, but to encourage them. And so what he does in this next section, he continues to bring up this topic of suffering to the people that he's writing to because they need encouragement. They need to be equipped. They need to be battle ready for the persecution that has already come and the persecution that will continue to come. So here we have this insignificant little group of Gentiles who have been converted to Christianity. They've been marginalized from the provinces of Asia Minor. They probably had friends and family who had now rejected them because of their new faith in Jesus. And so they are encouraged by Peter to persevere. And so what we have in this letter as a whole is like a dose of anti-venom to persecution. A dose of anti-venom to the suffering that Christians will face. But more than that, this letter is not just a single dose of anti-venom. It is like a stockpile of anti-venom that you can just keep running back to again and again and again as this fiery trial awaits us. Peter opens in verse 12 by declaring that this fiery trial is on its way for the Christians in Asia Minor. It is inevitable. It is on its way. It will be uncomfortable. It'll be frightening. It's going to be okay, is what he's saying. And the reason he knows that it's going to be okay is because God has a glorious purpose to grow his people, to make them more holy through the suffering. The language that Peter uses here in verse 12 parallels what we see back in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Back in chapter 1, Peter declared that the trials that his readers were facing were a test to prove the genuineness of their faith. And the end result of this testing was to purify them and refine them as followers of Jesus. It's a process that culminates in rejoicing for the Christian and praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Christ. He's mimicking the same idea in this passage. This fiery trial comes as a test for God's people. 
The test is not designed so that people might fail. The test is designed to see them come through that fiery trial to the other side. Just like it was in chapter 1, verse 13 reveals that the fiery trial and test will result in rejoicing when Christ's glory is revealed. Peter's basic position is that suffering is hard. Suffering is complex. It confuses us. But God is refining us underneath all of this. He is growing us through the pain, through the grief, through the confusion. God is at work. Even though on the outside it might not feel like it, God is at work. He's refining you. He's purifying you. He's strengthening you. He is perfecting your faith through your suffering. The end goal of Christian suffering is ultimately trekking towards an ultimate joy and an ultimate good for us and the ultimate glory of Jesus. And so this is kind of the the basic sketch of what Peter's doing here. But then what he does now is highlights two different ways, two different paths of how we can suffer. And he contrasts these two paths as a good way and a bad way to suffer. Look with me at verse 13. Rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name in verse 16. And verse 19, therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Notice that all of these examples of suffering are tied to the Christian's relationship with Jesus. We share in Christ's sufferings. If anyone suffers as a Christian, those who suffer according to God's will, all of this suffering is connected to the fact that these people are Christian. It's a religious suffering. It's a suffering that comes because we follow Jesus. It's persecution that comes because we trust in God. It's religious persecution. Now, we need to be clear here that Peter is not discounting any other kinds of suffering that we might face in our lives, of which there are plenty physical ailments, accidents like Ayla, all of these sorts of things that are happening. And I don't know what that's like in your life. But from what I have seen and experienced in my own life, it is terribly hard. But Peter's not discounting that by talking about this specific kind of suffering. What he wants us to wrestle with here is for us to be battle ready for the particular suffering that will come because we follow Jesus. When we are maligned for our faith in Jesus, for us to be insulted for our faith in Jesus, there will be a time, I believe, and it's starting to come now, but I believe there will be a time where this will become way more of a pressure point for us than it is now to follow Jesus. For quite some time, living in Australia has meant that Christians have had a basic respect from society, but over the years, And I think you would agree the tide is turning. 
the appreciation that general society has for Christianity is waning. Christianity is slowly but surely falling out of favour with society. And we all hear the angry voices opposing Christianity in the media. We all hear the angry voices opposing Jesus and the gospel in politics and even Christian ethics. They're on the nose. But for some of us here this morning, it's much closer to home than that. Maybe there's an angry voice opposing your faith in your workplace. Maybe there's an angry voice from family in your own home. Opposition to the Christian faith is not a matter of if, but when. And we need to be prepared for when it comes on our doorstep. So how do we respond when this suffering comes? Verse 12. Do not be surprised, shocked, and do not panic. Three things. Don't be surprised, don't be shocked, don't panic. Verse 13. What does he say? Rejoice when suffering comes. Verse 16, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God when suffering comes. Here is Peter's three-step path of how a Christian is to respond when we are mocked or ridiculed or insulted for our faith in Jesus. Don't be surprised and don't panic. Rejoice. Don't be ashamed. Now, let's be honest, that, is, that sounds weird, doesn't it? When suffering comes, don't, don't be surprised, don't be shocked, don't panic, but rejoice, don't be ashamed. They're fascinating, striking words that Peter is using here. Rejoice in the fact that you are sharing in the suffering of Christ. It's such a different way of thinking. There's no need to be ashamed because through this suffering, we know that God is refining us, that God is purifying us, making us more holy. So be encouraged. Be encouraged. There are some people who think that the power of the gospel is displayed through savvy rebuttals or kind of clever smackdown tactics when when a, a Christian apologist kind of takes down an atheist or whatever. There are some people who think that we should, there are also some people who think we should disengage from society to kind of just run away from it. Peter's words here kind of reject both of those two views. The reality for the Christian is remarkably different. Peter's actually calling us to a way of thinking and a way of living which is of an entirely new order. The Christian faith doesn't stand or fall on how watertight our arguments are to defend it. Neither is the Christian faith confined to the, within the walls um, of safety and security where we avoid persecution. No. Peter wants his readers to understand that they can stay calm, don't panic, rejoice and rest in the promises that God is refining them and purifying them. Even in the face of insults, these Christians can remain calm. We can remain calm in the face of insults because we know that God is working. We can rejoice when we are maligned because we know God is at work. And we don't have to be ashamed of our faith in Jesus when we face mockery and ridicule because we know he is getting more glory and we are getting more joy. 
When we respond with calm rather than panic, when we respond with joy rather than despair, when we respond with boldness rather than shame, it is then that the true power of the gospel will be seen for what it truly is. Because when we respond like this, the world will see that the gospel is something worth suffering for. Let me say that again. When we respond with calm, when we respond with joy, when we respond with boldness, the world will see that the true power of the gospel is found not in the avoidance of suffering, not in the the smackdowns of trying to react to it, but by resting in Christ's completed work for us. So how are we going with responses to persecution? How do we go when we are maligned or insulted for our faith in Jesus? How do we go when the world hurls insults at us for our faith in Jesus? When a family member brings up a controversial topic that is designed to belittle and make fun of you and your faith in Jesus, do you panic or remain calm? Do you rejoice or do you despair? Do you unashamedly rest in the hope that is yours in the gospel or do you cower away in fear and shame? When that atheist at your workplace ridicules the church and Christianity and turns to you and says, your faith is archaic and irrelevant, do you panic and unleash a rash response or do you remain calm? Do you rejoice that you in the opportunity you have to show the hope in Jesus or do you despair? Do you unashamedly rest in the hope that is yours in the gospel or do you cower away in fear and shame and hide away in that safety and isolation? What about when governments bring in legislation that makes it difficult for us to practice our faith? Do we panic and demand our rights or do we remain calm? Do we rejoice in the hope that awaits us or do we despair? Do we unashamedly rest in the hope that is ours in the gospel or do we as the church cower away in fear and shame? I hope you hear that in all of these things we have the opportunity to show the world a better way, to show the true power of the gospel in our response. In all of these circumstances, the call of the gospel is for us to not panic and be triggered but to entrust ourselves to the God who will carry us through this fiery trial. And that's what Peter says in verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust themselves to a faithful creator while doing good. The first way of suffering that Peter unpacks is suffering for the the sake of Christ. Suffering for righteousness. And this is the kind of suffering that Christians have been called to. But there is a second path of suffering that Peter unequivocally rejects in this passage. Peter warns us to avoid this path. And this second path does also involve suffering and pain. But it's suffering and pain for all the wrong reasons. Look with me at verse 15. 
But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. The second way that people suffer is not because of righteousness, not because of their faith in Christ, but actually because of their sin. This is Peter's number one tip of how not to suffer. He is saying, do not suffer for unrighteousness. Don't suffer for the sake of sin. To put it bluntly, do not suffer for being a fool. Peter moves from degree of the greater sin to the lesser sin, from murder to theft to evil conduct and behavior to being a busybody. But all of these examples doesn't matter the degree, they're all sin. They're all examples of sin. And if you suffer because you did the wrong thing, then you are simply experiencing the consequences of your evil actions. I suspect the charge of murder is not something that anyone here, hopefully not anyway, has been challenged with or prone to perpetrating. But theft? Maybe. Possibly you lied on a tax return? Maybe you stole someone's idea and used it in an argument at uni in your paper. What about pride, lust, greed, selfishness? Pretty sure all of us here could put our hands up for that this morning, myself included. What about being a meddler or a busybody? Unfortunately, there are way too many examples of Christians doing this kind of stuff, of Christian meddlers, people who love to involve themselves in a matter without right or invitation to interfere in the affairs of other people. In all of these instances, the suffering that might be experienced are a direct consequence of evil actions. And this kind of suffering... Peter's point is this, this kind of suffering is actually warranted and justified. The world looks at this kind of suffering and goes, yeah, you totally deserve that. But contrast this with the righteous suffering we've already looked at. It is suffering righteously even when wrong is perpetrated against us. So Peter has presented these two contrasting pictures of suffering. The first path is of righteous suffering. The second path is of unrighteous suffering. The suffering that comes because of our sin and our folly. So let me provide a brief practical example to know if we are suffering for the right purpose. When you share the gospel with someone, how do you react? How do they react? Are they offended? And if so, we then have to ask, what is it that they are offended by? Are they offended by me and how I've presented the gospel to them? Or are they offended by the gospel itself? Are they offended by Jesus? If they walk away from an encounter from any one of us sharing the gospel and they are more offended by us than the gospel, we've got it all wrong. I can think of examples of people that I know who have gone out on a soapbox and they have caused a ruckus in the street, sharing the good news of Jesus, but the manner in which they've shared it is deeply unloving to other people. I can think of another example where I've heard of someone who's recently moved into an area and they thought, okay, now's my opportunity to send out a little gospel track that hammered um, judgment and sin and you need to repent and confess your sin, which is all true. 
but the way in which it was shared was in an unloving way. And so we have to assess our motives in how we're sharing the gospel. Are people offended by us and the way we are doing it, or are they offended by the gospel itself? If they walk away from the encounter being more offended by the person sharing the gospel and the gospel itself, it is possible that we are at risk of suffering for being a meddler or an evildoer. If, on the other hand, we share the gospel with gentleness and respect, as Peter called us to back in chapter 3, then we are probably suffering for the sake of Jesus. Because it's Jesus and his gospel that is being rejected. And this is the key. If someone is going to be offended, we have to make sure it is the gospel that they are offended by. It is the gospel. It must be the gospel that is the point of offence, not the way we share the gospel. And share that, those stories, those journeys with one another as a church. Kind of talk about these things and about how you can do that. If you've got someone at work who's just really difficult to engage with, talk to Talk to Mike, talk to Matt, talk to someone else here at church about how you can partner together in working through that. Sharing the gospel is never done in isolation because God has created this beautiful community that we can support one another through as we share the gospel. So what does this all amount to? And this brings us to the central idea of this passage this morning. Look with me from verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous are scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? The, the, the judgment that Paul is, uh, Peter is talking about here is the ultimate day of judgment when Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead. Those who trust in Jesus for salvation will be saved and those who reject the gospel and Jesus will be condemned. The great day of judgment. But Peter's language here, though it's kind of talking about a future time when Jesus returns, it seems to suggest that it's already started through the actions and lives of those in the church. In other words, the righteous suffering that Christians embrace now and experience now are being added as a weight of evidence for this judgment day when it finally comes. Yes, we are justified by grace alone through faith alone, but our faith is not devoid of living a Christ-like life. And the Christ-like life is to live a life of righteous suffering. For every single moment of righteous suffering, over every span of church history, where a Christian has suffered for Christ, there will be a day of reckoning. For every bit of suffering that you might have experienced in this world, in your lifetime, there will be a day of reckoning, a day of judgment, a day of vindication for you when Jesus returns. 
And so for every Christian who suffers for Jesus, for every Christian who cops it on the chin, they are building up for themselves a vindication that will one day be proved genuine. It will be proved authentic, real, ridgy-ditch. They will be vindicated and their opponents will be routed. It kind of sounds a bit strange, so I'll try and do a little illustration for you to try and capture this. Imagine that you've been invited to play a game of poker at a friend's house. But there's one problem. You've actually never played poker before. You arrive, you take your seat, and someone explains to you how to play the game. You understand enough of the game after they've done their little explanation, and so you begin to play. Very quickly, you start, your inexperience comes to the fore, and you lose round after round after round. And after you've already lost a bunch of rounds, you are about ready to throw in the towel, and then you finally get um, dealt your last set of cards. And in that, in that flop, you see you are given a ten and an ace of hearts. And as the flop is revealed, and as the cards are revealed in the middle of the table, you suddenly realise that you have a royal flush in your hand. In spite of your inexperience, in spite of the fact that you have copped mockery and ridicule from all of the other players who have been going, oh, he's new, they don't know how to play, we're going to wipe the floor with them, you suddenly realise that you have a hand that mathematically cannot lose. It is impossible for you to lose this round. You are absolutely guaranteed a victory. So what do you do? You go all in with the chips that you have left. And all of the other players add their chips in as well. And as the cards are revealed, everyone sees that you have a royal flush that trounces all the other hands and you win the game. And this helps illustrate the point that Peter is trying to make. God's judgment of the world that is rolling out through the church right now is a moment of revelation for every Christian that has copped persecution for following Jesus. That day, the cards will be turned, the tables will be turned, and everyone will see that the Christian was right all along. Not because they were right, but because they trusted in Jesus. From the world's angle, it seems as though the Christian is getting pummeled. But from God's angle and from God's eyes, when Christians suffer for righteousness' sake, it's simply revealing the genuineness of our faith. Not only that, it reveals the strength of who and what our faith is in. Even if from all angles it looks like you are the butt of the jokes, um, and all of the mockery and the flack from peers, friends, family, work colleagues, your suffering doesn't go unseen by God. Your suffering never goes unseen by God. He knows it all. And your life is a rolling out of the vindication you will one day receive in completion when Jesus returns as judge. Just like when the cards were flipped and the other players realised they had lost, the day of Jesus' return will be a day of reckoning where righteous sufferers will be saved and the ungodly sinner will be re revealed for who they truly are. 
Do you notice how this is an encouragement? This is not something we should ever rejoice over. This is the day of God's judgment is going to be a fearful thing. But for those of us that trust in Jesus, it is a day we can look forward to. Because we know we're on the winning side. Verse 19 reveals the fundamental difference between those who will be vindicated and those who will be condemned. Those who will be vindicated are those who entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. They realize they don't have to defend themselves. They realize they don't have to panic. They realize they don't have to be fantastic at giving compelling answers to people who critique Christianity and critique our faith. We don't have to convince people to come into the kingdom necessarily. We simply entrust our souls to a faithful creator and we continue to do good. True faith in God leaves the big stuff for him to sort out and we simply get on the business of loving God and loving our neighbor, including our enemies as ourselves. Friends, Jesus is the supreme example of this. The Apostle Peter isn't just writing this going, oh, this is a nice idea. No, he's writing this because he knows this is the way of Christ-like living. Jesus is the supreme righteous sufferer. Jesus was mocked. He was maligned. He was insulted. He was beaten. And when we suffer for righteousness' sake, we stand in the long line of Christians who have entrusted themselves to God in the same way that Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane when he said, not my will, but yours be done. He said, take this cup from me when he pondered what it would be for him to absorb all of God's righteous anger against our sin. He said, take that cup from me but not my will be done, but yours. Jesus is the supreme example of a righteous sufferer, sinless, never committed a sin in his life. And yet he paid the price for all the sin that we have incurred, the debt that we have incurred against God. So Inogra Baptist, my challenge to you this morning is will we join in the chorus of Christian history church history and will we live a life of righteous suffering following our lord and savior jesus christ be encouraged when persecution comes because it refines you and it will purify you and it will prove genuine when jesus returns as i close i want to share these words from the beatitudes that jesus himself shared at the sermon on the mount and this is what he says And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now listen to this. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Friends, Jesus fulfilled every single one of these to a T. He was reviled, he was persecuted, and he was put to death for our sake. And so now we have the privilege of rejoicing and giving our lives wholeheartedly to him. So friends, when suffering comes, don't panic, but rejoice. Submit yourself to Christ. Entrust yourself to God, and he will one day vindicate you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we have thought through an incredibly heavy topic today. Father, we recognise that we have Christian brothers and sisters all around the world who are right now facing hardship, persecution, um, the threat of imprisonment and even death, Father, for following you. And Father, we, we even feel to some degree how that weight is starting to grow on us as the years go by. Father, we thank you for Jesus who has um, triumphed over sin and Satan and death through his um, crucifixion and through his triumphant resurrection. We thank you for the forgiveness we have in him and the confidence that we have as we look forward to that day of judgment when we will one day be vindicated. Father, help us to suffer well. Help us to suffer for Christ. Help us to not suffer for being a fool. And help us to continue to journey with one another as we seek uh, to follow Jesus wholeheartedly, not just as individuals, but as a church community. We ask all of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.